John 3 verse 1 says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And Father, we humbly pause and ask, please do what it takes to prepare us by your Holy Spirit's ministry, that we could have an ear to hear what your Spirit wants to say to this part of your church through this particular portion of your word that you've inspired and recorded and given to us. Lord, we ask as always, that your spirit would be our teacher, the one who gave us these words would now interpret them and help us to experience what you want to say to us personally in our hearts this morning. Bless your word and speak to us directly. We ask in Jesus' wonderful name, and everyone said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. You know, I don't think we should ever underestimate the incredible value of taking the time to speak to just one individual. You know, by human nature, some of us may be terrified to stand up and talk in front of crowds, but there's also something very vain in our humanity that tends to feel some greater form of validation the more people we have listening to us or the greater attention that we have. Yet the reality is some of Jesus' most important ministry and some of his greatest lessons we see beginning here in John chapter 3 came from a time when Jesus had one-on-one -on -one interaction with just one individual. He shared some of the greatest teaching, not with large crowds. Yes, there was times when Jesus spoke to great multitudes and there are some great teachings recorded in the Gospels. But in fact, some of the greatest statements that the Lord Jesus Christ ever made actually took place when he was talking to just one individual, having a conversation. He wasn't preaching a sermon. It was just conversation taking place. In John chapter 3, he records such an instance, and it supplies to us some of the most valuable spiritual truths to help us understand things about the kingdom of God and how to be in a right relationship with God. And we'll see that as we look at it together this morning. The end of chapter 2 told us that Jesus knew what was in a man. Now, as chapter 3 begins, we really see that basically demonstrated now. We're revealed how Jesus does know what is in a man internally. And by this encounter with this one man, now Nicodemus, Jesus helps him to understand his spiritual condition and to show him the genuine need that was in his life that I don't think Nicodemus even realized himself at this point in time. And yet Jesus, knowing him better than he knows himself, brings this to the surface look with me in verse one again as we pick it up there it says there was a man of the pharisees named nicodemus a ruler of the jews so our account opens by introducing us to this man who it seems as we read through the story seems to be searching spiritually 
And we're told two things in verse 1 here, if you take note with me, about Nicodemus that give us some insight into his life. The first thing we see there in verse 1, look at it. It says is that he was a man of the Pharisees. Now, important to understand. The Pharisees were an elite sort of religious sect in Israel, numbering about 6,000 or so men in the time of Christ as we're reading this. They began during the days when the Jews were being kind of overruled and sort of being greatly influenced by other uh, you know, foreign people outside of themselves, other nations and cultures. And so because of that, understandably, the Jewish culture, the Jewish way of life, as well as their belief system in Judaism and the Old Testament law, was sort of being therefore threatened to maybe be cast aside or to be just intermingled with other ideas and philosophies of life, Greek culture and Roman culture. And so because of that as a response, really in what began, I want to say as a good intention, there was this zealous intention whereby the Pharisees, this sect of individuals sort of formulated or came together with the agenda and goal of preserving the law of God, not only in written form, but as well in their in dedication to actually obey and observe the law of God to make sure it was preserved and that it was kept authentic and that nothing would pollute it. And they were committed to observe the law of God to the strictest degree and that rigid devotion and that rigid observance of the strictest degree of the law of God, unfortunately, like many things in life, began to go to an extreme whereby on top of strictly trying to observe the written law of God, they then began to, over time, add additional ideas and create the additional oral law and some of the written traditions, things which we know now historically referred to as what we call the Mishnah and the Talmud, which are basically sort of oral interpretations and commentaries on basically, well, when God says to rest on the Sabbath, what does that really mean? And so then, therefore, you would have volumes upon volumes of what it meant to not bear a burden. You couldn't wear false eyelashes. You couldn't have false teeth. You know, I mean, there are all these things. You couldn't spit on the Sabbath day because if that spittle or loogie rolled in the sand and made a, a little depression, now you are plowing on the Sabbath day. And that was work. And literally, there were all these ridiculous minutiae that were created and volumes upon volumes were then written in regards to what really does the law of God mean. And over time, the Pharisees sort of deteriorated in just to this very religious, um, legalistic sect of rule keepers that had ritual without genuine reality in their lives spiritually. And because of all these traditions and man-made ideas and meticulous rules that were uh, designated of what this man and what had to be followed, their zealous devotion, much of which was not even to keep the scriptures anymore, but to keep traditions of men and routines and rituals and religious practices, it reduced them to a place where they lost sense of relationship with God. They had ritual without reality and they became in many ways nothing more than a very arrogant, self-righteous group of rule-keeping religious people, many of whom were the greatest, uh, in a sense, opponents resisting Jesus and his own ministry. In fact, Jesus himself spoke rather sternly against the Pharisees' way of life, the way it reduced to, and the burdens they were putting on people. If you read Matthew 23, he gives quite a scathing rebuke there to these religious leaders in that day. So they are the ideal representative of what it meant to just live a very religious lifestyle, following rules, keeping rituals. We're told as well, secondly, in verse one here about Nicodemus, that he was not only a Pharisee, but look at it there. It says he also was a ruler of the Jews, which the language there indicates that he was most likely a member of what was called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was basically a 70-member uh, religious ruling council among the Jews. They had political influence, but they were basically like, if we could equate in our mind, think of maybe something like the Supreme Court in today's day and age. They were a high-ranking 
religious council of 70 members made of Pharisees, Sadducees. Now, Rome governed at this time historically, but that did not mean that this religious council did not have incredible influence. They basically made judgments. They ruled over all matters, moral and religious and even somewhat civil and social among the Jewish people themselves. In fact, historians tell us that the Roman government expected this council, the, the Sanhedrin, to actually maintain civil rulership over the Jewish people so that they didn't have to deal in many ways with that headache. So the picture of Nicodemus, as we get the setting of our story here now, is a man who is very strictly religious. I mean, you want to talk about the perfect picture of the, you know, quintessential altar boy, ultra orthodox, incredibly religious. This was Nicodemus. He knew things intelligently about God and the ways of God. He was committed to all the practices and the observances. He participated in all the routines and the rituals. In fact, more than that, he was a leader. He taught other people how to observe these things. He was a religious leader established even in the culture that direct other people. Yet, listen, with all that religiosity, he was still missing spiritual reality in his own heart and life. And he had all the outward trappings of religion in his life and the observances, but yet the reality was missing on the inside. Look as verse 2 goes on. It says, this man, this very, very religious man, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus, it seems here, initiates this now private meeting with Jesus. It tells us here he wants to talk about some things, and it says, verse 2, that he came to Jesus by night. Now, that could be for multiple different reasons. It could be that he came to Jesus because his heart was stirred as he was observing Jesus' life. Remember what just happened last time in chapter 2 is Jesus cleansed the whole temple rather abruptly uh, with great authority and Nicodemus perhaps thinking who is this guy I gotta I gotta find out something more about him so it could be curiosity that he has interest in Jesus but he's nervous of being seen with this man Jesus so he seeks him out in the evening when there's in a sense a little more cover of what he's doing it could be he was sent as a representative of the Pharisees to go sort of search out Jesus and and maybe probe him a little bit more who he is and what he would say about certain things or it could just be because of the crowds that amassed around Jesus during the day that it was hard to get a time alone with this guy, you know, like a, a busy CEO or somebody or a celebrity. And it's like, how do you ever get five minutes just alone with him when all the crowds aren't around him to have a little personal conversation? Whatever the case, he's alone with Jesus. Again, this isn't Jesus preaching a sermon. This is Jesus talking heart to heart with one other individual, a soul who God created and loved and he wants to speak to. And look how Nicodemus greets Jesus there. It says he says to him, Rabbi, which is a term of respect for a Jewish teacher. And he admits that he, as well as others, look what he says, we know that you're a teacher. So he's admitting that himself and maybe the other Pharisees or other people at that time, that they sensed the presence of God was with him. Now, the ministry of Jesus, when you look at it, even last week in the cleansing of the temple, and all the things that Jesus did, his signs and miracles performed, it was undeniable that the presence of God was with Jesus, that the power of God was with him. That's why Nicodemus is saying here, nobody could possibly do the signs that you're doing unless God was with him. And look what he then says there in verse 2. He says, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, that is sent from God. Now, the, the unfortunate thing here is what he missed is the reason that the power of God was so evident in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus, and in the teaching of Jesus is not that Jesus was just someone who was sent from God, but that Jesus himself was God in human flesh. That's why it was so evident that the power of God was with him because he was God among humanity, the very son of God in human form. And that's why anything that Jesus said or taught is far superior to anything anyone else would say. So this dialogue begins to happen. And after the brief formality now of kind of exchanging a few formalities, you look how Jesus here 
He cuts out all the small talk. Sometimes I appreciate things like this about the Lord. <laughs> he just gets right to the subject. He says, thanks for the small talk. Let's get to the issue now. Uh, cuts right through the small talk and goes directly to the issue in Nicodemus's heart. Verse 3, Jesus just launches right into it. And he says, he answered and said to Nicodemus, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus, again, knows Nicodemus. Remember chapter two, he knows what's in a man. He knows he's a very religious man. He knows he's very devout even in his desire to adhere to his religiosity and all of its practices. And, and he sees this about Nicodemus, but yet he also realizes that poor Nicodemus is lacking spiritual reality. And he's lacking relationship, genuine relationship with God. So he addresses what Nick here is lacking and searching for. I love, have always loved verse 3, that it says the first two words, Jesus answered. I take note of that because take note in verse 2, Nicodemus doesn't ask a question. All he does is try and give some formalities to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit records here, Jesus answered and said to him, now, I think perhaps the Spirit of God is trying to indicate to us it's because Jesus knew what questions were already inside of him spiritually. And you know, this morning, I tell you the same thing. Jesus knows what questions are in your heart before you ask them. And maybe even if you don't have the courage to ask them, he already knows what you're questioning. We almost feel guilty sometimes. Oh, I feel bad. I'm kind of questioning some things about God as if somehow God doesn't know about that. God knows the questions that are in your heart. And listen, God can handle the questions in your heart. He's a He's got big shoulders. He's not going to be intimidated by questions that we have. Read the Psalms. The psalmist many times would, why God? How long God? God, I don't understand. And, and Nicodemus has got genuine questions in his heart. And he think Jesus here sees what he's searching for as he's come to meet with him. And I think Nicodemus myself sensed something inside where he just sensed something was missing. And he couldn't put the pieces together. He just wasn't sure. I can sense Nicodemus kind of wrestling through in his religious lifestyle thing. I don't get it. I've been religious my whole life. I know when to bow and when to sit and when to stand. And I know what things to read. And I can quote the things. I can quote the things without even reading them. And I know all the customs and the rituals and the practices. And I've got the formality down. I've been doing this since I was a kid. I could do this backwards and forwards with my eyes closed and, and I know right information and, and I even pray prayers. I say the prayers. I could recite the prayers. I know all the routine and ritual, but yet why am I still empty inside? What's still missing inside of me? I mean, I have the most religious lifestyle compared to that person and that person and yet they, they seem to almost know God better than I do. What's missing inside of me? I have all the religious workings and experiences. So Jesus answers and says to him here in verse 3, again, answering the searching questions inside of him, he says, Nicodemus, most assuredly, he's saying, Nicodemus, I want to assure you something because I see you have questions in your heart and you realize something's missing. And he says, I want to answer that for you so you can be certain. Here's what it is. Unless one, look at it, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is a reference there to the spiritual and eternal dimension where God as the king rules. So certainly when Jesus says the kingdom of God, that encompasses heaven where God dwells and rules, but it also involves to an extent a life lived under the influence and the awareness and the experience of of the Spirit of God ruling over your life as you live now until the day when you then enter into the dimension ultimately, eternally, where God rules in heaven as well. Again, remember Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we read the kingdom of God, certainly that's a location, if you would, literally, but it also indicates a spiritual life that's in a submitted relationship to the rulership of God and to God's spirit, having sort of taken the throne of our heart whereby God is enthroned internally in our life and we're experiencing the kingdom of God where ultimately one day we will then be ushered into the presence of the kingdom of God. So in the Bible, as well as even here in our story, 
Notice Jesus speaks in verse 3 as well as again there in verse 5 of two things. He speaks of entering the kingdom of God and he also speaks here of seeing the kingdom of God. He says in verse 3 here, one cannot see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. To see it, the idea is experience it personally in order to be able to become aware of the kingdom of God. And that reality, he says, that cannot happen unless something supernatural happens inside of a person. And that thing that needs to happen supernaturally to allow a person to see or experience, to have their eyes open to the realities of the kingdom of God, Jesus says that cannot happen unless one, verse 3, he says, is born again. Now, the idea there, born a second time, a rebirth, to be born again indicates that there is another birth, a rebirth experience. And Jesus here introduces this spiritual reality and necessity of being born again. Important to understand what Jesus is going to begin to talk about here to Nicodemus. Again, the Bible teaches that when we are born into this life physically, all we possess is physical life. This stems from the Garden of Eden. We do not automatically have spiritual life. We are not born with physical life. We are born with the capacity to have physical life, but no ability in ourselves to have spiritual life. And that stems from Adam, Adam in the Garden of Eden because we are all physical descendants of Adam. And so we have inherited Adam's condition. And we know what happened in the Garden of Eden very briefly is that God said to Adam after having created him physically and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives, it says that God breathes into Adam, he comes alive, he has physical life, but he also has fellowship, awareness, and experience with God. And then God says to him, Adam, of all the trees of the Garden of Eden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, one prohibition, he says, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, we know what happens. Adam transgresses the one prohibition or command God gives to him and demonstrates his rebellion against God's authority. And when God says something, God means it. Now, when Adam partook of that fruit, Adam did not die on the spot. He did not fall over dead in the Garden of Eden. And then God go, oops, I only had two. Now I have none. Didn't happen. Adam continued to live. But what did happen? All of a sudden, something changed. And now Adam's hiding from God. And Adam's trying to cover himself. Why does he feel shame now? Because now sin is entered into his life and the lights have gone out spiritually. And now he's hiding from God. Because what happened is, yes, death, in a sense, physically entered into humanity. But the bigger problem is Adam died spiritually. The, the light went out, if you would, on the inside. And all of a sudden, Adam and God's relationship has been severed in something. Now he's hiding from God instead of walking in awareness and fellowship with God. The Bible says in Romans 5, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death has spread to all men because all, just like Adam, have sinned. Again, important, important to understand spiritual truths that the Bible teaches that we are inherently sinful from birth. Listen, I have three children. I love them to death. They are adorable, but they were born adorable little sinners. Right? You don't have, if you raise a child, how can you not believe that we are born sinful from birth? It's naturally inherent in them. You don't have to teach them how to lie, throw a temper tantrum, disobey. That's all in there because they are born that way. It, it's, it's how we are born inherently sinful, not inherently good. We're all born spiritually dead because of the effect of sin within us all naturally. And so we're not in relationship with God automatically. That's very critical because a lot of people just think that, that they kind of just can gradually just begin to connect and make a relationship with God as if somehow they turn over a new leaf and they just turn on the spiritual life from the side. When the Bible says that's not true, we have no capacity for spiritual life within ourselves. Let me explain it this way. Even as a child cannot conceive itself. A child can't give birth to itself. Now one of my three children said, Mom, today's the day. Get out of the way. A child, the child is given birth by the mother. 
The mother's body conceives the child. The mother's body gives birth to the child. And in the same way spiritually, you can't conceive spiritual life in yourself. You can't give spiritual life to yourself. You can't give birth to spiritual life. That's why the Bible teaches we must receive spiritual life. We must be born, literally language is from above, outside of ourselves. We must receive spiritual life as God's Spirit gives birth a second time in our lives and gives birth to a spiritual life. That happens when a sinner comes to Jesus in faith, believing their condition and who he is, and they ask and receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and for the gift of God, which is eternal life. And when that takes place and we accept Christ and he becomes Lord and King, Jesus, who possesses eternal life because he's the eternal God, then Jesus, who possesses eternal life, gives to us spiritual life. As he then becomes a part of our life, he gives us that quality of life by his spirit. And at that moment, we receive spiritual life that's needed to come alive spiritually, or what the Bible calls being born again, having a spiritual birth. We're made alive spiritually. Ephesians 2 says, when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive. You see that? God made us alive together with Christ. Write in your notes here, Titus 3, verses 3 to 7. There it describes how we were once foolish and, and living in sin, but yet it says, when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Again, so important to understand it's not gradually reforming yourself through religious practice that brings you into a, a right standing with God or a relationship with God. That's not possible. And if it were, there's no reason Jesus Christ should have ever come to this earth and suffered and died the way that he did brutally and that a good loving father would say, yeah, I don't mind, just abuse and, and spit upon my son and mock him and crucify him. Listen, there was no other way that's why God had to make a way. We can't reform ourselves. What we need is to be regenerated internally by the very spirit of the God who once created humanity, giving to us spiritual life at the point that we come to Jesus for salvation. So again, we need to experience that. And when that happens, that is when, what the Bible is describing here, if you would, a person is made alive spiritually. It's at that moment we experience the start of a genuine spiritual life. We come alive. God's spirit awakens your dead spirit inside and awakens you to that reality of having experience and relationship with God. And that's when spiritual life starts or what the Bible calls spiritual birth or being born again, that second birth. Just as you're born once to experience physical life, we're then born a second time to experience spiritual life. And that's what Jesus is indicating to Nicodemus here, who's deeply religious, but sensed something was missing inside of himself. And it's that reality that Jesus sensed. Nicodemus, I know what you're searching for. And it needs to happen in your life. Now, once we are born spiritually and the Spirit makes us alive, it's then as if you would, as I said, the lights are turned on inside. That's why I think Jesus perhaps says here, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Listen, I can't explain this perfectly in human terms, but I know on July 12, 1992, when I accepted Jesus Christ genuinely into my life and the Spirit of God came in, and I was born of the Spirit, I, the one thing I could tell you is this, it was like the lights went on. And all of a sudden, I couldn't explain why I was like, Oh, yeah, I get it now. I see, now I see what this is. All of, all of a sudden, as if somehow your spiritual perception is awakened to the reality of God in a personal way. And all of a sudden now, there's this awareness of God in a way like there never was before, no matter how much religion you try to rub all over yourselves. Listen, you cannot assimilate yourself into a spiritually right standing with God any more than if you leave a car, you leave a person standing in a garage, they don't become a car. 
You can't sit in a church and rub religion on yourself if you have an infection. You can't take an antibiotic and just rub it all over your forehead. That antibiotic needs to go on the inside to have something happen to bring help and change. And it's the same way spiritually. Listen, I implore you this morning. If you've had a very religious life, great. But that is not enough to bring you into a proper relationship with God. And that's why Jesus here says that will never happen unless you're born again. Unless you're born again. Now Nicodemus hears this. He's much like you and I. Look at him in verse 4. As he hears this concept presented to him, he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus, still being at this point, I believe, spiritually dead, he's spiritually dull. The lights are off. So he's trying to reconcile what Jesus meant. He's perplexed. He's trying to understand this. And he thinks of the concept of birth and being born. And and his mind reverts to trying to put this together in human reasoning. I take note. I find it interesting. Notice that Nicodemus here, he doesn't get offended or argue with Jesus and say something like, why? Why must we be born again? I want to be a Christian, but not one of those born again Christians. He doesn't say, why must we be born again? He says, how? How does that happen? I, I don't understand. How does one experience this being born again? He's saying, wait a minute, you're saying it's necessary to be born again at some point. Are you trying to say a man can, can enter a second time back into his mother's womb and, and, and be born again? Now listen, I've watched three kids be born. That ain't happening again, especially in the size they are now. I mean, it's just impossible. So Nicodemus here, again, he's trying to reason this out rationally and he's thinking, that just seems impossible. And it is impossible. And it's also not necessary because Jesus is not talking about a physical birth. He's talking about now a spiritual birth that must take place. But Nicodemus, look at his language there in verse 4. He says, how can a man be born again? Or that is, start life over when he's old. Now I find that insightful. How can a man be born or start life over once he is old? It seems like to start life all over once you're old would be impossible. And in one sense, that's true. There's no fountain of youth. You can't just start your life all over again. But spiritually, it is true. Because spiritually, no matter how old you are or what stage of life you're at, through salvation and experience with Jesus Christ, the Bible offers that you can start life all over again. That you can begin again and start all over. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, listen, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things become new. Literally, you can end an old way of life. You can end an old pattern of life and how it has always been and you can actually start and begin a new life again with a clean slate. When someone comes to Jesus Christ, old ways and old habits and old desires and old perspectives and, and, and old you know, struggles, all those things pass away. And the Bible says because of this new creation of being born anew spiritually, like a brand new life, all things become new. You develop new ways. You develop new desires that you never had before. All of a sudden, you want to read this book called the Bible. All of a sudden, you want to pray, not because you have to say one of those prayers. You want to talk to God. All of a sudden, you find a desire to want to forgive somebody. Where did that come from? to want to experience what would be pleasing to God, to want to refrain from doing what's wrong and to try and all these new desires come and you have new perspectives towards things. You look at life differently, how you spend money and how you treat people and what you do and what you won't do and all of a sudden these new patterns come into your life. And let me just say this this morning, how appealing to realize that one of the greatest desires I think of all of humanity is available in Jesus. And quite frankly, that's this. Who in their right mind does not desire at some point in their life to want to just start over? You find me anybody on this planet that at some point in their life has not thought, you know what, man? If there were just some way that I could just hit the reset button on my life and start all over again. 
And look, that's not just applying if you're 75 or you're 50 or you're 40 years. There are kids that are 12 years old that are already struggling with things and dealing with their own life issues that say, you know what? I wish I could just start all over. I got some guilt for some things I've done or the way I've been living. I, just, I wish I could just start all over. Let me tell you something. In Jesus, you can. There's the opportunity to start all over. This is exactly what it means to be born again. Not physically, but it's almost as if you can literally start afresh. You get a brand new slate on life. You can begin a whole new life and live a whole new way. It's just literally like a newborn babe getting to start and to live life completely differently. You get to start all over again. So Nicodemus, he's trying to reason these out logically in faith and it's stumbling him. How can a man be born again when he's old? Can you go back into your mother's womb and be born? Jesus answers, verse 5, look at it. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Again, we see Jesus explain more and kind of emphasize now the absolute necessity of being born spiritually in order to, here's the term, enter the kingdom of God. Notice with me in verse 7 there, this time Jesus says to this very perplexed religious man, Nicodemus, don't marvel. The idea is he's trying to say, don't be shocked by this. Don't be stumbled by this. Don't let it be something that your mind wrestles with that I'm saying to you, you must be born again. Please notice the language there in verse 7 that Jesus, the Son of God, says you must be born again. You know what that term there means in the Greek? It literally means must. It's exactly what it means. It means must. It means necessity. It means requirement it means absolutely essential to enter the kingdom of god that's what jesus said who is the son of god the one who came from heaven and from the right hand of the father in heaven to speak truth to people that god created and loved listen only people who will one day have access into heaven's dimension those who will be allowed to be in the presence of god to enter into the father in heaven's house eternally the only ones who will enter and dwell will be god's children god's children and the bible teaches the only way to be a child of god not according to human opinion and reason not according to anything else the bible teaches the only way to be a child of god listen is you must actually become a child of God at some point during your life on this earth. Let me say that again. The only way to be a child of God is you must at some point in this life become a child of God. Now that's hard because people say, oh, we're all children of God. We're just all, we're all created physically by God. I don't dispute that. But the Bible does not teach we are all children of God in a spiritual sense. In fact, if you study the Bible, it may be somewhat startling. You realize the Bible teaches we start out life as sinners. Ephesians 2 says that we're children of wrath. Jesus himself, who loves us more than anybody, the one who actually died in our place, said that we're children of the devil. The Bible teaches the truth is that until the Spirit of God enters a person's life and takes over the throne within Sin and Satan subtly rule over the human life, whether a person realizes that or not. I'm not saying people are saying, oh, yeah, I'm serving the devil. In the first 18 years of my life, I was going, I'm, I'm serving the devil, man. I'm a bad dude. No, I was a stupid, <laughs> deceived dude that didn't realize that sin and Satan were subtly ruling my life, and that's why I need deliverance from Jesus. That's why I needed Jesus to save me out of that, to fill me with his spirit, to take over and to make me become, when I was born spiritually, a child of God. Then all of a sudden, I become a child of God so that I can then enter the kingdom of God. John chapter 1 verse 12, let me remind you, said this, to as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. 
to those who believe in his name. Again, do you hear what the Bible says? To those who receive Jesus, he gives the right to become a child of God. We have to become a child of God. And you have to receive Jesus to then become a child of God. And then once you become a child of God, you'll have access into the kingdom of God. It's that process of becoming God's child where we experience what Jesus is describing here of being born spiritually, a spiritual birth. Romans 8 says we, re we receive the spirit of adoption by whom we then cry, Abba, Father. And then the spirit, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit, our human spirit, that we're children of God. So once this spiritual birth happens, the Holy Spirit begins to bear witness to us inside. You're a child of God. And we begin to recognize that reality internally. And Jesus, who deeply cares about us and wants to spare us from hell, therefore says unashamedly in the Bible here, you must be born again. You must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. Well, look how he tries to explain it to Nicodemus, who's questioning about this natural birth kind of concept. He responds there in verse 5 and 6 as we're looking at it, trying to help him get clarity and says, Nicodemus, most assuredly, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, though commentators here, and you can feel free to read them, give multiple different opinions of what Jesus meant here when he now adds in one must be born of water and of the Spirit, I think the clearest understanding is just following the flow of the context in the conversation rather than trying to get overly symbolic and spiritual and try and read something more into it than what's there in the plain language. Again, in verse 4, what's Nicodemus doing? He's talking very logically. How can I go back into my mother's womb, physical birth again? I already did that once. And he's thinking logically. So Jesus, continuing with the context of the conversation, says to him, Nicodemus, let me answer you. One cannot enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and of the spirit. And then he goes on to say, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh, physical, is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So that which is born of physical life gives birth to physical life and the experience of physical life. That which is born of the spirit gives birth to spiritual life and spiritual experience. As Jesus says there, that which is born of the flesh, think this with me logically. When a child is conceived in a woman, that child develops and grows in a water sack. And ultimately, at some point, when it's time for birth to take place, that water sack breaks open and that child is born through the breaking of water is what we refer to it as. And as that child experiences its physical birth, it's fair to say that a child is born of water. And physical flesh gives birth to physical flesh and physical life. Now, in the same way, God gives birth spiritually to start a spiritual life when we're born again. And rather than water giving birth, it's the spirit that gives birth. And that which is spiritual gives birth to what is spiritual. The Holy Spirit is who draws and convicts us, shows us that we're sinners, helps us to realize who Jesus is as the Savior. And when we put our faith and trust in Christ to receive him the day that we do, it's the Holy Spirit that gives birth to the spiritual life and causes us to be born again. That's what Jesus, I think, believes when he means here when he says that which is born of the Spirit is spirit or spiritual. So I think Jesus is simply further illustrating the need of two different births that need to take place in all of our lives and to experience two realms. You've got to be born physically to experience physical life. And you have to be born spiritually in order to experience and have a spiritual life and an eternal life. That's why Jesus says, Nicodemus, this is really not that complicated. Don't marvel over it. He must be born again. Just like the stork didn't drop you off initially, Nick. You were born. You didn't just show up. You had to be born. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must have a spiritual birth. It, it makes logical sense. You must have a spiritual birth to then experience the spiritual life to be able to enter then the spiritual and eternal life of the kingdom of God. Well, verse 8, Jesus then says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So, likewise, is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus wants to further illustrate now what this spiritual birth is 
and what a life in the Spirit is like. And he uses now a metaphor or an analogy of the wind. And again, it may be hard to fully explain in human words this whole thing of being born again. But Jesus says it doesn't negate that it's a reality. And he says in some ways, quite honestly, it's a lot like the wind. The wind, it blows where it wants. You hear the sound of the wind. You may not be able to explain wind patterns. You may not fully understand the dynamics, but it doesn't negate that the wind is at work. The idea Jesus is trying to drive home here is wind is an invisible but very powerful force that exists in its reality. You don't see the wind with your natural eye. You may not be able to explain exactly in detail how it all works, but it's undeniable that you can see the effects of it. You can clearly see that it is at work. You can observe the wind. You hear the wind. You don't see it, but you can certainly hear it. And you can't perhaps see it with your eye, but you see the evidence of what it does. I got a portion of my fence that's laying on the ground because of the wind this past week. I didn't see it happen, but I see the effects of it. It's blown over. You see the effects of the wind. The wind changes things. It moves things. It has powerful effect to sway and alter things. And Jesus says, verse 8, so is everyone. Look at it. Who's born of the Spirit? Jesus is saying here, the work of the Spirit is invisible to the human eye, but the effects are very clear. You may not be able to understand it mentally or put it together, but it's very observable when a life has been moved by the Spirit of God blowing through the sails of a human heart. And he says, it's so evident, like the power of the wind alters lives or alters things, he says the power of the Spirit alters lives. Changes happen. All of a sudden, somebody gets born again and they're trying to... I don't know what's born again. But all of a sudden, you whoa, that, that guy's changing. She's transformed. She's like a different person. And it's because the power of God's Spirit is evident in the way that it's causing the effects in a person's life. And Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus put this together, but he answers again, how can these things be? And he said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't know these things, Nicodemus? He says, most assuredly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen, and you don't receive our witness. So notice Jesus speaks there in verse 11, sort of like the collective representative of the Trinity. Do you take notice in the 11th verse there, the capitalized we and our that's repetitive there? Jesus is speaking of we know what we speak and we have seen, but you won't receive our witness. He's referring to the Father and the Son and the Spirit, how they understand how these things happen. Yet the problem is humanity and Nicodemus don't always receive what God tries to say to them because they can't reason it out mentally. So the conversation goes on. Jesus says, verse 12, I've told you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So Jesus points out in Nicodemus that his unbelief is actually what was hindering his ability to understand and clearly put together what God was trying to say to him. He says, Nicodemus, if you don't understand these basic things of what happened on earth with a, with a human being when they come into a relationship with God, he says, your unbelief is robbing you, man. If you don't believe these earthly things, how are you going to believe if I wanted to tell you about heavenly realities and greater things of the spirit and i think jesus points out to nicodemus and to all of us that unbelief in the heart of a person is one of the most paralyzing things for a spiritual life it can be absolutely destructive unbelief is what holds us back and hinders us in our understanding and our experience of god because human beings we're little you know proud little arrogant things and we you know, buckle down and people think, I need to fully see and understand everything if you're going to want me to believe that. I need to grasp it. I need to understand it. And the Bible teaches, contrary to our arrogancy in our hearts, that once we choose to believe God and what God says, that once we choose to believe, it's then that we see. It's then that we understand as the result of faith allowing the eyes, listen, of our heart to be enlightened. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 2. It says, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered in the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. 
Hey, can I encourage you this morning? Believe the words of Jesus. Just believe them. I've been studying the Bible for a long time. I've been a Christian since 1992. There are things I read in the Bible still. I go, what? what? Exactly. How? But I just believe it. Because Jesus said it. And he's pretty credible. Just believe the word of God. And when you choose to believe Jesus and believe the word of God, the spirit of God will reveal things to you. And you'll begin to see and to understand more clearly. Jesus says, no one's ascended to heaven, but the one who came down from heaven. That is the son of man who is in heaven. Now, I know the New King James kind of renders that a bit obscurely. Another translation says that Jesus said, for only I, the son of man, have come to earth and will return to heaven again. And what he's trying to point out here is that because he is the only one who originally came from heaven, that makes him a pretty good authority to talk about how to get into heaven and how to enter the kingdom of God. And I think Jesus is trying to remind Nicodemus and all of us, he is the most credible authority because he's a reliable ladder of access between heaven and earth. And this morning, I want to encourage you as you go through life and people say things and you try and rationalize things mentally and logically in your own mind, can I encourage you, always take the words of Jesus over your own human reasoning over the words of any other man, and even if you don't fully grasp it all mentally and logically, Jesus is credible because he came from heaven. And so he came to heaven to speak to us of heavenly realities, and if we believe him, we have the greatest assurance of the validation of what it will result in. Look as he concludes verse 14 and 15. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent, he says, in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So Jesus uses an Old Testament illustration here for Nicodemus to help him again connect the dots and to relate to what is necessary spiritually. In Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites had rebelled against God. And as a result of that sin, the Bible tells us there that these fiery little serpents as a judgment came into the camp and began biting the people with deadly poison. And there was no human cure for the situation. As this judgment was upon them, it was a sure death sentence with no available cure and no one to save them. But God in his love offered a solution to be spared from that judgment. God told Moses, create a bronze replica of that serpent, put it on a pole and hold it up. And whoever just looks at it, they'll be spared from death. They'll be saved from that judgment that was upon them. All the people needed to do was believe what God offered as a solution and they would be spared from the judgment that was upon them for their own sin. Some believed and some looked and they were spared from death. Others mocked and said, that is foolish and too simple. I'm not doing that. And they died as a result. And Jesus says here in the 14th verse, even so the son of man must be lifted up. What's he saying? Jesus must be lifted up upon a cross. And he is God's solution for the judgment of sin that's deserved upon humanity and he will take the suffering and the punishment on our behalf and we must look to that and believe upon it to be spared for the judgment that's upon us spiritually. That's why Jesus must be lifted up because he says, verse 15, whoever then believes in him will not perish, that speaks of eternal judgment and damnation, but have eternal life. Again, if we look to Jesus in faith, that's what can spare us from the judgment that's upon us for our own sin. Hey, today, it would be amiss of me not to ask you, do you know for certain that you have eternal life? Do you know for certain that you have been born again? Not that you become very familiar with religious lifestyle or familiar with Christianity. Because exposure to Jesus Christ is not the same thing as an experience with Jesus Christ. And God loves you. And if you are not sure, make sure. And make sure others are sure as you speak to them in conversations this week. Let's stand. Let's pray together.